Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And today we're talking about what's on all of our minds, COVID. And we are very excited to have Dr. Rupa Dot, who is the executive director at Women in Global Health, a practicing clinician who is currently caring for COVID patients and a champion for the World Health Organization. Join us for a very in-depth interview on the vaccine rollout, shifting CDC guidelines, testing, holiday travel, how women are uniquely being affected. We're gonna cover a lot of ground. So let's get right to that interview and to Dr. Dot. Welcome, Dr. Dot. We have been anxiously awaiting this conversation with you because we're constantly bombarded with COVID news that we're trying to make sense of. And not only are you an advisor to the World Health Organization, but you're also a practicing physician at MedStar Hospital in Washington, D.C. So first of all, you know, what are the current realities that you're seeing on the ground? Yeah, so, uh, you know, really great to be here with all of you. And you know, the on, on the ground realities is those numbers that we're seeing, those charts with those arrows going up and showing that rates of COVID transmission, infection, severity of illness going uh, higher and higher. It's actually happening in our hospitals. I'm seeing in the front line, uh, many more patients getting admitted, um, many more patients having um, severe infections that are requiring our uh, ICU care to again, start becoming saturated. And some of those other realities and uh, the ones that we really have to think more deeply about is, you know, who are the people that are the hardest hit? and when we talk about uh, people of color, uh, people from uh, uh, backgrounds such as Native Americans, Black people, Hispanic, essential workers, women that are providing essential work, these are the people that we are seeing um, uh, with higher rates of COVID-19 and also getting hospitalized. So these numbers are clearly showing that we do have some very worrisome inequalities in our society. I can imagine hearing the stories where people are denying that fact and saying that it's not true, the hospitals aren't filling up. I mean, how frustrating that must be for you to hear as a doctor. It is. It is so scary. Uh, you know, right now we are um, getting back into making um, different action plans. Um, I work in a community hospital in D.C. in addition to the MedStar one, and both different hospitals are, you know, planning worst case scenario, just exactly as we were March, April. And that's quite scary to be uh, almost a year out and in a way uh, be back to exactly where we started. And it you know, just shows why we need political leadership that is based on um, using science and working closely with public health experts and what happens when, when you don't do that. And um, as a health provider, you know, really looking to our political leaders to take stance and stand with us, not only applaud us, but um, really invest in the health systems and make smart scientific guided decisions. That's right. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the investment and the sorts of testing that we're doing. But before we even get into that, over the summer and at the beginning of the spring, we were cautioned about this second wave of COVID. Is that where we are right now? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. In, in some parts of uh, the country, we could say it is a second wave. Um, but in other parts, uh, I think it's still the, the big tsunami that hit that just hasn't really quite, you know, stopped in the United States or slowed down. Um, so, in, you know, I really have to look at it from a contextual perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States never really got ahead of this. And, you know, we have to be humbled by that, that this is just not, um, you know, what some of the other countries in Europe have seen or in Asia where there was a complete flattening of the curve uh, here in the United States. The curve has uh, been exponentially growing, and it's been um, so. If we look collectively across the United States, I would argue we we aren't in a second wave. We're still in the first, but if we break it down um, by certain communities, um, especially example is the state of California did have a, um, a reduction in transmissions at certain points, and then now is back up. So one could potentially argue that uh, certain communities in the United States are facing a second wave, but uh, I. 
I think what's important that we look at uh, the United States as a whole, as one country, um, one one nation, um, one one group of people. And I know that's hard to hear when we still feel very divided and when um, we're not been able to you know move past uh, some of the you know intense election debates and uh, division that's been created. But the more and more we can start looking um, at the United States as one country and stand together in solidarity, uh, we really will have a more effective response. You know, and that's um, certainly challenging to your point where so much of this from social distancing to mask wearing has been politicized. And we've seen especially testing be politicized. And I just want to ask to start off, what is the most accurate test in your opinion? Is it the brain poker, as they say, or what is the best test? Yeah, so uh, really, really great question. I think testing is still critical and we must test, test, test. And that's really the message that the World Health Organization has been echoing, but testing uh, on its own is not enough. And uh, there are multiple tests out there. The PCR one is the gold standard. There are antibody testing that only really um, allows one to uh, find out if they've been exposed, but does not talk about um, what their uh, immunity level is, their level of protection is. Uh, And then particularly with testing, one clear uh, point to understand is the testing only gives you a snapshot analysis, um, the picture of exactly the state your body currently is in. It does not mean, um, you know, it cannot uh, say for sure 100% that you you aren't carrying the virus or you're, you know, uh, it's quite possible two days later, you might test positive again. Um, and so, you know, there's uh, testing itself on its own is not the way to be um, safe. And it's not the way to protect the most vulnerable in your family and your communities. Um, so I, my strongest message on testing is, yes, PCR is the best way. Uh, rapid uh, rapid testing um, that are often antigen based uh, are quite useful um, since uh, the turnaround time Time is shorter, 90 minutes, but uh, again, not as sensitive. But regardless of which test you pick, uh, on its own, it is uh, not an effective strategy. And uh, you've probably heard of the Swiss cheese model. There's lots of graphics uh, floating around about that. Um, and virologist uh, Ian McKay um, has been the one that came out with this model. And I mean, the simple message is that, uh, you, you know, with the Swiss cheese model, it's not just one aspect. There's personal responsibilities, there's shared responsibilities, physical distancing, masking, hand hygiene, uh, avoiding touching the face, uh, limiting crowded space, but also um, some of the other things around uh, continuing to physically distance and um, isolate and quarantine. And uh, all these things are also part of uh, having a much more solid response and keeping yourself and your family members and community safe. And so this idea of getting tested and then not taking safe social distancing measures or good hygiene measures before you get the results, that's not to anyone's benefit, I, I'm assuming. Completely agree. And, uh, you know, there were well, there were definitely long queues during the holiday season, uh, and we're going to expect more of it just uh, with Thanksgiving. Many people felt that, you know, I'm going to go ahead and go get that test uh, 24 hours before I see my, you know, my grandmother, my grandfather, and, and that's enough. And actually, it is not enough. And I think we need to, again, um, go back to the basics that uh, the CDC uh, has uh, told us at least 14 days, um, we might be carrying the virus and shedding it. And so the best way to um, limit um, exposure to anybody is a a quarantine, complete physical isolation, Um, not social isolation, you can virtually engage as much as you want, um, but really physical isolation and getting testing and and knowing that that testing is not 100% and practicing all the rest of the public health uh, recommendations, wearing the mask, wearing the face shield and hand hygiene. echoing we need to do that all when you make we make a really good point you know right now we've got to be safe because um we've got to keep as many people you know virus free and healthy because our icus are overcrowded um but we are actually seeing images this week from across the pond in the uk um the brits are actually getting the vaccine um do you know when it'll be available in the states Yes, yeah, so, uh, we're hoping and um, as, as a health provider, any moment now, we're all holding our breath. Uh, I actually had received an email uh, uh, from uh, 
the leadership in one of the hospitals I, I practice that they're ready to go by December 10th, as long as the FDA approves the vaccine. So um, we're just waiting for the FDA to go through its regulatory process, which um, I completely trust in. And, uh, and I know that the United States specifically, our health experts um, practice some of the highest standards. Um, so the moment they say a green light, um, you know, I'm going to be encouraging all of our most vulnerable patients um, to get that vaccine. And as health providers, I know there is a protocol being um, you know, adopted to prioritize uh, those health providers and those that are in um, communities, uh, particularly uh, you know, when we think about the most hardest hit uh, to be prioritized. Well, and I think that, you know, when we look at it, President Trump has been advertising the vaccine since the, the beginning of COVID, right? And so there's a lot of people who are curious, you know, because there's been so many promises that we were going to be open in Easter, or that we were going to be, you know, is is this actually the cure-all? Or is this just part of the tools that are going to be necessary to end this pandemic? Yeah, so you've, you've answered the question that, you know, there's there's never a magic bullet, uh, especially uh, in public health and in responding to a global pandemic. This is one of many. We will be facing uh, supply shortages, both nationally and globally. Um, great thing is that um, there are plans um, being put forward to make sure that the vaccine is, um, you know, paid for. But what testing has shown us, you know, there was messages out there early on that, you know, testing is going to be affordable and free. Um, however, in reality, you know, to get testing, many people have had to pay uh, pretty expensive co-pays. Uh, and the, right now, you know, there isn't a clear picture out there whether uh, co-pays will be waived for getting vaccines or who will get it or when we will get it. So I think, you know, still um, we as, uh, uh, as health providers, but the global health and public community, um, we're saying, you know, that comprehensive approach, uh, the Swiss cheese model or whichever model you wanna pick up on, we all need to continue to practice that. Um, and this will be a rolled out process. And as we talk about a rolled out process, we know that there are have been significant racial disparities, um, especially in our country and a lot of distrust in the system. How are we advertising to black and brown communities that have historically had distrust because of some of the issues in the medical community? How are we making sure that they are in a space where they are open to receiving the vaccine? Yeah, great point. And this is something that we need to continue to reflect and learn and adapt. Um, I think the moment we feel that we understand um, both gender and racial bias in our health system, we actually fail the people we're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is very exciting is looking at the new Biden-Harris um, advisory uh, COVID testing that's been created. It is uh, both gender diverse and uh, racially right. diverse. And it's great to see um, one of my close friends Friends, uh, Lois Pace, who represents civil society, um, an African-American woman, part of that advisory group. There are many other women of color in it, which is great, but her, um, her role as being someone that works particularly with civil society organizations, um, that sends a strong message that uh, any uh, COVID response must involve the communities that are the most effective, um, not at a later stage, but in, the, in developing the strategy, developing um, the solution and understanding the solution. We often talk about this in women in global health health and why we were founded is, you know, uh, too many, you know, women deliver health, 70 to 80% to of the health workforce in most countries are women. But when you actually look at who's making decisions in most parts of the world, um, women represent less than 25% of leadership roles. Here in the United States, when the first COVID-19 task team was um, announced by the White House, uh, there was not a single woman on it, 100% male. So how can we, you know, expect women uh, to get behind the agenda? It was definitely not a diverse um, task team, and it's really um, very uh, promising. And, um, and and we're using the word hope a lot to see a shift in leadership that is more representative. So you know, engaging communities and um, bringing them on in the very beginning of the response. Um, and, you know, we've missed that uh, early on, but there's an opportunity um, to to shift this. As as, as power shifts in the in this country. Yeah, and the diversity of that piece would also the language diversity and making sure that all this information is accessible 
in multiple languages because, you know, there's been so much disinformation that it's a real opportunity to combat that. I, I have a question for you because I had read somewhere that, you know, when you have the distribution of the vaccine, if it's not um, widely kind of distributed across different areas, if it's concentrated in different pockets, then that basically diminishes the efficacy. Is that true? Yeah, so what, what um, this is kind of building on the research showing that there, need, there needs to be a critical mass and there's also key populations that need to get the vaccine. And uh, a lot of the advisory boards and expert groups that have been looking at, you know, what should be the recommendations for how COVID um, is a vaccine is rolled out and, and why we see differences between the strategy that the uh, United Kingdom, the UK is adopting versus what the United States may adopt. We do have to tailor it and we do have to tailor it to what epidemiology is showing um, where the virus is and where it is uh, transmitting at higher numbers and which people are less um, able to protect themselves. Many of the people that I've seen, many of the patients, they don't have an option to physically um, isolate. They are essential workers. They are the ones that are uh, running our transportation, the buses. They are the ones that are working in um, uh, elder care homes. Um, they, they have to show up for their job. And, um, and they are the ones that are also the least likely um, to currently access a lot of the health services we're talking about. So I think, you know, for us um, to be effective, um, yes, there is a need to have aggregated mass vaccination, but reality is that um, this is not going to be possible, you know, overnight, it's going to be a phased out approach. And then, you know, we need to start asking ourselves the tough questions, um, really, where should we be focusing our efforts and what the uh, experts on this say is really it should be the hardest to reach people where we see transmission rates are higher. And uh, that does take political um, leadership. It also means looking at communities that we don't count usually. Um, where that includes migrants, particularly the undocumented prison population, um, uh, homeless people, uh, particularly ethnic minorities or religious minorities. Again, these are not the people that have um, voice. And so they can't advocate for themselves, usually in most, most countries and even in our own country. So it's almost you know, really taking a deep reflection of saying, if we're going to really get ahead of this virus, we need to um, focus our energy and resources of vaccine delivery where um, people are the hardest hit. It's, um, and, and that's a tough thing to do. It's a tough yeah, thing politically. Right. Well, and you're right. You've hit on, you know, competency and cooperation is going to be key, right? Um, we, we just saw the New York Times reported and Scott Gottlieb confirmed he was Trump's former FDA commissioner that the Trump administration turned down Pfizer's offer for an additional 100 million coronavirus vaccine doses last summer. What effect will that have on Americans? Yeah, I, I, I looked at those numbers and it is it is very disappointing. I think there are clearly many decisions the um, the, the current uh, White House administration and Trump have done that have really destabilized public health. Um, this is one of many. And uh, what we have to look at is that, um, you know, what it, what it means is that the administration that's coming in is going to have to really um, need the support of all people, bipartisan support, mm -hmm. um, to uh, actually address all, all the mishaps here. And, and we know that's not currently happening. Uh, having a vaccine shortage means that we will have to um, have much more uh, particularly much more uh, governance looking at making sure that the vaccines are getting into the hands of the people that need them the most. And, um, you know, truly, if we fragment the process the way we have with a lot of COVID-19, um, there, there are, are clearly reasons to worry that, you know, the hardest to um, hit people are not, and especially the racial minorities, women, um, migrant communities will not get the vaccines. The shortage is going to be real. Uh, and it does mean that we also need to build much more uh, community trust and um, and community solidarity. Uh, we, we need to see that we're in this together. And um, we also need to think about this, that there is an actual, you know, security threat here too. Um, the, you know, organized crime can rise. Um, people might sell fake vaccines. Um, you know, there, there could be a lot of this type of stuff happening that we usually don't see in classic um, public health that the next administration is um, clearly gonna have to look at it from a security lens as well. 
You brought up solidarity and trust, and there's talk that the Trump administration, that Donald Trump might sign an executive order to prioritize the U.S. for the vaccine, regardless of the fact that we turned down that offer. What You're very involved with global health. So what message does this give to the rest of the world? Yeah, you know, that's... Uh... It sends a complete wrong message that we actually uh, have borders that, uh, that that are truly physical borders. You know, one thing is that the virus, um, you know, spreads across. There is, you know, we're not going to be safe until the weakest health system can uh, really protect its population, right? We're always one flight away uh, from disease spreading. And so the moment we start looking at this pandemic as purely uh, what's happening within uh, our borders, we're missing out on the fact that uh, actually uh, global health means that all of our neighbors have to be safe for us to be safe. And so when um, President Trump particularly sends that message, let's focus uh, on uh, what's happening in our country, it's, it's misleading and it's uh, setting us up for uh, a failure and uh, our economies are not gonna continue um, to be able to open up. Uh, we are continue gonna face even more economic hardship. What this pandemic has shown is uh, that both health and economy are interlinked and um, um, this is just another example of short-sighted thinking and not really looking at how do we have a, a response that benefits all. And um, the United States has a long history of really uh, looking at the world um, in, a, in a lens where that we are truly part of one, one world and one community. We have uh, created um, uh, we have created the United Nations, we've created the World Health Organization, we've supported so many um, intergovernmental organizations um, to be formed. And, and that's because we, our founders and those that have been leading the country um, and our citizens really believe in, in the one world concept. And so it is unfortunate and short-sighted to put this kind of messaging forward. And of course, it encourages uh, many other uh, leaders around the world that want to put national and populism forward to also take on bad behavior. I mean, we we are seen as leaders, and when we use our platform in this kind of way, it is uh, very worrisome. I want to switch gears real quick to quarantine because. Literally, while we've been sitting here talking, I received an emergency alert on my phone about I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles and about the state of California and our new stay at home order that is as strict, basically, as it was um, when this all started. Again, we're hearing different messages now about the appropriate amount of time to quarantine. So let's talk about quarantine. You know, what is the right amount of time and the kind of degree of intensity that you should be following? Yeah, so it, quarantine is is one. Um, you know, we have to acknowledge it's it's not an easy thing to do. I think you know when we first started, it was almost a, a phrase that you know one can easily quarantine. You know, take the two weeks, the fourteen days, and physically I isolate yourself and. What public health researchers around the world realize is that um, it is very challenging to do that. It is especially um, when you factor in um, the socioeconomic aspects many people in the world can't afford to. Um, and then there's also a psychological um, aspect to it. The CDC um, just very recently has uh, launched new guidelines and I recommend everyone to check out the Center Disease Control CDC website. That's the, the gold standard, the place to go um, in the United States to get guidelines. And they have issued guidelines that, you know, safely one can quarantine. Um, and what we mean by quarantine is uh, self-isolation, really staying at home in a specific room away from other people um, and, uh, you know, not sharing bathrooms where, you know, one part of the household is uh, interacting with the external world and one isn't. It really is about complete physical isolation is what quarantine means. And they have suggested that quarantine can be reduced down to 10 days. Uh, and this is after uh, mapping out a significant amount of data. If 
uh, one is able to access testing um, on day five, um, then uh, quarantine can be, and the test is negative, quarantine can be reduced down to seven days as long as you don't show symptoms. Of course, the safest number remains 14 days. So if you wanna be uh, part of that curve at the 100% mark of being sure it's 14 days, um, um, but we have seen the guidelines adapted because of these hard realities. And we want people to be able to um, safely uh, practice quarantine and, um, and encourage more people to actually practice it as well. You mentioned earlier that testing and then going and seeing your family, say for the holidays that we're all up against Christmas now, isn't necessarily the right approach if you want to be safe. So if somebody wants to see their family over the holidays, then is the right approach to quarantine for as long as possible, seven to 14 days, and then is it safe to see your family? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really tough one to answer. I think that the, the, the public health answer is clearly the best thing is to postpone those celebrations. Uh, and I know that's very hard to imagine, but uh, many people, especially that have vulnerable um, members in their families, elderly, or those that have cancer or other immunocompromised disease, uh, really just think about, you know, can you postpone celebrating uh, your, your Christmas or your New Year's or um, uh, any other religious holiday um, to spring and, and do a different version of it? I, I think that's, that's, I think, the first thing. Ask the question, is it really necessary to celebrate in person? Is it really necessary to celebrate now? Um, and is it worth the risk? We saw all those, you know, very, very sad cases of so many, um, so many people over the holidays and Thanksgiving where they didn't think they would be, you know, part of the percentage of losing a loved one or being hospitalized. And, uh, and I can see that, you know, as, as a frontline provider, I'm seeing the cases go up. And it's really, really sad to see, um, see people because of just the celebration aspect of it uh, at additional risk. But if, if for some reason you feel that it is a must, um, you know, the, the safest way, and, I, and again, I will echo it's there's nothing safe about it still, it would be um, a practicing 14 days of quarantine, getting testing and, and really practicing quarantine in a way where um, you truly are physically distancing from everyone else. And um, I like to talk about uh, the pod and really uh, it's uh, in a way a myth buster of the pod. Too often we think uh, we're in a pod uh, and really a pod, is, the definition of pod is that, uh, and there's no actual technical definition, but the way that I think the term terminology is being used is um, it really should be that it's the people that are within your household or um, people that also are made the same social contract. They aren't going to be seeing anybody else or uh, engaging in social interactions. And too often what we're seeing is, uh, you know, it's, it's a pot of the week or a pot of the month. And, and that's how these small gatherings have led to significant amount of spread. So if you are going to see your loved ones and, and have those um, celebrations, really have very honest conversations with everybody involved and assess the risk and really assess the risk of, um, you know, can we all agree to make a little bit of sacrifice now for the better good uh, of all in the long term? And reality is the hospitals are really filling up and, um, and just knowing that you know, that one infection, and if every every one infection continues to multiply, mm -hmm. um, we just won't be able to accommodate people in our hospitals. Well, we're also seeing, I mean, to Alejandra and Johanna's note just a second ago about their getting new stay-at-home orders, there has not been a cohesive or collective or unified national response to this. So we're seeing we're in LA, in California, they're having very strict restrictions. I am in Chicago where they're less so, and it's even worse in Miami where you're seeing nightclubs and bars still open and essentially no mask orders how do we operate in a space where every city, sometimes every county, every neighborhood is different? Yeah, so, you know, this is a sort of one of the challenges um, that, you know, we are seeing about how the matter has been handled in the United States and the lack of uh, just solidarity across the country and mm -hmm. um, also just a lack of, uh, no easier way to put it, but, uh, you know, lack of leadership in, in the White House to just say, you know, we are, 
going to uh, really put the lives of all all people, you know, first and uh, and do what needs to be done, and a, and really creating a fragmented approach. Capacities um, vary across the country. Some some parts of the country have well-funded um, state. Um, health regulatory um, agencies and, and public health systems that can, um, you know, rise to the occasion and other places where they don't have those resources and they're underfunded and, um, and, and also they're it's the ecosystem of how decisions are being made are, are so um, widespread that, you know, how often are we making decisions about a public health issue uh, from a political stance versus a evidence and science-based one. And too often um, when things are getting down to the community level, they are from a very politicized um, aspect and the science is getting lost um, along the way because we're not seeing leadership at the national level clearly communicating what needs to be done. And, uh, and that's really, you know, problematic. I do hope, and many of us in working in um, public health and global health uh, can't speak as, you know, one unified perspective, but most of us, you know, really are hoping with this transition, we can expect clearer messaging, clearer guidance of what the national response should look like at the community level universally. And right now that's missing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a maybe more hidden negative effect of COVID, which is the fact that a lot of folks are not going to the doctor for their preventive checks. A lot of women are not getting mammograms. You know, I'm an advocate for um, breast cancer awareness and women's health, and this is something I think a lot about. And in talking to folks and different doctors, what they've said is that you know the number of breast cancer cases being diagnosed, for example, have plummeted, obviously not because there's less cases, but because of the fact that people aren't going to the doctor and getting these mammograms at the same rate. Talk to us about how important it is and how to safely be able to keep up with these kinds of exams. Because when this first started happening, we first went into the quarantine period, it seemed like it'd be a few months and maybe you could put off your doctor's appointments for a few months, but you can't not get wellness checks for over a year. Exactly. And um, you know, one of the things that we need to be all thinking about is um, how do we live with the pandemic and not necessarily, uh, you know, look at it as something that's going to, you know, a lot of people are like, well, it'll be 2021. So, you know, we'll, we'll be back to how things were uh, in 2019. And you know, I think there's this like um, just really understanding that we need to create health systems that are strong and resilient and can serve um, all people and provide care for all people in an equitable manner at all times. And right now our health systems are not set up that way. Um, Particularly the United States um, has often um, walked into situations saying that we have the best global health security agenda and best global health security mechanism. And what that means is that we were often, um, you know, using our model to say that we have designed health systems that could, uh, withstand any pandemic or any health security threat. And clearly 2020 has shown us that's not the case. And more and more, we need to look at our health systems and do health system, health system strengthening in a manner that allows us to provide care for um, all the chronic conditions um, and other acute conditions that aren't related um, to a, a health security threat, um, such as in this case, coronavirus. And, and we haven't set up our health systems that way. So uh, really, you know, as we look to what kind of response is needed, we need to look into health system strengthening and building health systems that can reach people pragmatically. What does that mean um, for the everyday uh, provider and everyday patient? Um, it means thinking about how do we look at different models of uh, reaching our patients. Uh, one uh, one aspect has that we have seen, which is uh, an acceleration of digital technologies. Um, but we also know that many people don't have access to digital technologies in the same way. There's a big digital divide here in the United States and globally. Many women don't have access particularly to mobile technology, but we also know in the United States, um, those from lower socioeconomic and certain racial ethnic backgrounds don't have access. So we can't uh, say that digital technology is enough, but that is one thing to use. Um, the second thing is uh, really also um, just uh, looking at access and um, from a cost aspect of it, we 
know that there is a unfinished agenda here in the United States of universal health coverage. We don't have universal health coverage. People still end up in um, financial hardship and uh, even bankruptcy because of the cost. And obviously there were um, efforts made through Obamacare to address this. We know that's under constant threat. Um, but during the pandemic, many people have lost their jobs. And that's another reason that they are not, um, you know, coming in um, and being able to access a lot of that preventative care. And then the third aspect of it is, you know, how do we uh, really uh, create systems where uh, people feel safe um, to come back into the hospitals, to come back into the clinics, and there can be a lot more communication done around what are the protocols. Um, hospitals are actually one of the safest places to be in, in society. Um, anyone that's admitted to the hospital or getting a procedure in most hospitals in, in the country are required to get a COVID-19 testing. If they've been in the hospital for a few days, they get repeat testing. Um, so, you know, we have to really educate people that uh, the hospital is quite a safe place and you're, it's very unlikely that there will be transmission that takes place um, in, in COVID. And then uh, finally, you know, going back to this big message of why it is our collective responsibility to keep uh, COVID-19 um, transmissions low is that we will continue to overwhelm our health systems if those transmission rates continue to increase. Um, there are health worker shortages, human resource um, shortages from nurses and doctors and other health techs um, that we're experiencing and seeing around the country. Um, and so us having uh, control over the pandemic is going to be critical so that capacity can open up again to address a lot of these, um, you know, chronic issues. As you said yourself, it's not that breast cancer has disappeared in 2020. It's there. And it's really sad that we'll see many more people, um, you know, coming in with later stage cancers because of exactly a health system not set up to operate during a pandemic. It's interesting what you say about hospitals being one of the safest places to be right now, because it kind of feels counterintuitive, but it makes sense when you explain it. For the women who are listening right now, who are kind of weighing their decision about is this doctor's appointment checkup preventative screening worth it worth the the risk of maybe exposing myself or going to a medical office or hospital what as a doctor do you say are the tests that we as women cannot go um over a year without taking yeah uh well as as a doctor i'm very biased because i believe in um preventative medic um medicine is such an essential part um, of, of just overall health and well-being. And it's not just the sort of physical um, aspect, but it's also the mental health um, aspect and, and well-being. And so I really do encourage everyone um, to have those virtual conversations with your physician and determine what are the essential tests, because it does have to be personally tailored, age-dependent, family history dependent, and also just how your overall health and well-being is. Um, fortunately, uh, there are digital um, solutions available uh, almost universally. Um, if you cannot um, access or use safely digital technologies, because um, there is also a matter of just um, not having the personal privacy to talk about things, um, hospitals and uh, clinics are very safe. They go through, um, uh, let's say, uh, pretty uh, strict, stringent protocols to sanitize every uh, everything, to test and question, um, you know, and everyone that's coming in to screen for COVID-19, including the providers. So hospitals and uh, health clinics are one of the safest places to be in society. And um, too often we look at uh, hospitals and clinics as the source of infection, but in reality, the source of infection is often um, in our, you know, social circle um, and those pods that I like to say we must, uh, you know, bust the myth about what a what a pod is, and uh, that's where transmission is really happening is in our communities and our households, and not in the hospital or clinic. So, um, definitely encourage um, everyone to have that uh, tailored conversation. If you are having any symptoms that are worrisome, um, a and a, you know, don't wait. It's um, it's safe to go and talk to your health provider. And if they feel that it is unsafe for you to come in, um, they are going to be honest with you and say, you know, this is something we can hold off on because we are working um, at capacity. And, uh, it, you know, I don't want to say there's, this is the essential list of what, what must be screened or not screened because it does need to be tailored. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, I over the summer, I learned that I had antibodies based on a probable exposure um, in March. And uh, I think a lot about what the long term effects of the disease is on people. What are you seeing is like the most kind of traumatic or most prominent um, long term effect of having COVID? Yeah, so we're learning every day what the long-term implications are, and uh, some of the things that we are seeing um, in in the hospital is quite complicated inflammatory um, presentations um, often in the lungs. So. Again, uh, people have persistent shortness of breath or recurring pneumonias um, or recurring inflammatory states in their body. Um, We're also seeing a presence of um, just some cognitive haziness. um, And that that is something that we've seen with other viral syndromes. But again, in the COVID-19 presentation, we're still trying to understand what that looks like. Um, Others have um, reported just overall fatigue um, and not being able to get back to their baseline energy. And that's likely to be multifactorial and also very much related um, to the immune response. But what are the um, drivers of it and how to treat it, especially? Um, There's still a lot more work to be done to answer those questions. Um, So my colleagues that work particularly on infectious disease um, often are the providers that many of the COVID-19 patients after experiencing the disease, they're often referred to these type of infectious disease doctors. And what what they're saying is that for a lot of their patients, um, the management is just following. They're not able to offer treatment. Um, And that also is very frustrating for patients um, to live with a chronic syndrome of COVID-19. I know I saw one of our colleagues who we all worked with um, on the first Obama campaign, Emily Parcell, had shared a story that said, that um, it's a bit awkward, but it sounds like some of the medical professionals are saying that COVID-19 may cause long-term erectile dysfunction in men. And she said, maybe this is the way to flatten the curve. Um, well, you're you're on to something there because whenever you know we, we often talk about if men had to give birth, we would no longer see the high rates of maternal uh, deaths, including in the United States. So, like if men had to get, you know, um, so I do think there is something to that, but uh, sometimes the response can be a bit low. We know men have been in many countries um, dying at higher numbers or getting the infection at higher numbers, and I can't say they've completely all taken up the response. <laughs> Well, I I know that this president has um, actually used it as an excuse to cut the World Health Organization's funding. We have a transition coming up. We want to see something different. What would give you hope and what would be uh, promising in a Biden administration? So there, there are a lot of things to be hopeful about. And I think the first thing that is the most exciting is just how the Biden-Harris administration um, is really trying to have a leadership team that looks like the people it represents. So just diversity is so critical. Um, We know that when you have diverse uh, leadership teams, you understand problems better. Uh, It also results in more sustainable solutions, more ethical decision-making. And I can go on and on about the multiplier effect when we do have diversity in our leadership. So that is incredibly exciting. Uh, But more specifically, to ground it into global health and uh, and really also recognizing that the United States benefits from a strong World Health Organization. We were after all one of the key founders of the organization have supported it the past um, 70 years um, in many ways. Uh, Some of it is financially, but a lot of it is um, through thought leadership, being part of collaborating centers, and uh, the list can go on and on. And and the ways that we have um, had a very deep partnership um, with the World Health Organization, uh, which is an organization driven by member states, governments becoming members, and together collectively, all those 194 organizations are responsible for the WHO. So I think there's some, um, you know, role for us um, to build that relationship again and build that trust with WHO and really hope the Biden-Harris administration acts on that promise that we made when we founded on it, founded the World Health Organization and comes back to it. 
Some of the other exciting um, aspects that are very time sensitive is uh, there is a consortium called COVAX uh, that a uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, um, Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines, um, and a few other um, organizations have come together to create. Um, currently, this consortium um, brings the private sector, the pharmaceutical industry, researchers, civil society, intergovernmental organizations, to accelerate um, vaccine um, production, research, um, and access across the entire world. It would be great to see the United States join the COVAX and join both um, in, a, in a way that it uh, participates from a financing perspective, um, especially uh, the vaccines needed to cover most of the world will require overseas development assistance. Uh, right now, the COVAX needs um, uh, at least uh, several billion um, $2 billion has been confirmed. Next year, $5 billion is needed. So really hope the Biden administration joins and joins in a legacy that the United States and particularly the Americans are known for is taking care of everybody around them and really, you know, being part of uh, the global community. Uh, and again, for uh, the sake of health security, we are only the strongest as the weakest health system. So for those that, um, you know, see this as about, we still need to put Americans first. Um, this is about putting Americans first too, right? We, we won't, mm -hmm. we won't be safe until um, everyone has access to the vaccine. Um, and so I think that's, that's really critical. And some of the other things um, just we're here as women talking to women um, about, uh, and hopefully men are tuning in, but I mean, as you know, <laughs> a rare platform for women yeah. um, is the fact that we know um, the current administration has uh, uh, one of the things, one of their first acts was to put the global gag rule into place. And for those that aren't uh, familiar with the global uh, gag rule, it bans foreign non-governmental organizations, NGOs from receiving US government funding, um, from using any form of abortion services, counseling, um, referrals, and it's gone even further under this administration that even access to contraception or education related to con contraception and safe abortion has been completely banned and over $9 billion of foreign assistance um, has been taken out of sexual reproductive health and rights and that has has led to millions and millions of unwanted pregnancies, has risked the lives and uh, potentially led to maternal deaths. So this is quite serious and hope that this is one of the top priorities in the Biden administration um, is to really put uh, the health of girls and women forefront. The agenda has been undermined and there has been active political efforts to undermine the sexual reproductive health and women rights agenda um, that has, uh, we're obviously dealing with it nationally, um, but uh, globally, we also have um, seen some really tough, um, uh, you know, tough things happen and um, really hope the administration just steps, steps in and uh, as a finally, as a health provider, I'd like to echo that uh, we need to support our health systems and we need to support the people that support the health systems that include all of our health workers, all of our essential workers. Um, uh, most of them are women and uh, many of them are women of color. Uh, so really looking at um, how do we create safe and decent work conditions? How do we invest in um, uh, decent jobs, safe jobs, uh, education, hazard pay, a lot of things that many other countries are providing for their health and essential workers, which we just quite haven't, uh, you know, looked at our health system in that kind of way. So let's not forget about the people that are keeping all of us safe. We hear you on that, Dr. Dot, and we have so much gratitude to our healthcare workers and want to support them now by doing everything that you're telling us is the right thing to do. And I have a last question because I hear cautious optimism in your voice. Can we start letting ourselves feel optimistic that we're starting to move towards the close or at least get a hold on COVID? Yeah, so a cautious optimism for sure. And uh, and the reasons I am feeling very hopeful and excited is, uh, one, we do have a vaccine and it is a record, uh, you know, record time that we've been able to get this vaccine um, and different vaccines and um, they're very good vaccines. And for those that are hesitant um, about it, uh, wanna really clarify that 
all the steps needed to make a good and safe vaccine have been followed. But what um, has happened that uh, hasn't happened before in, in history is that the political leadership, um, the financial resources, and even the public engagement from researchers to those participating in trials has been at the highest level. So all the things that usually go step one, step two, step three started really happening simultaneously, regulators working closely with scientists, close, closely working with public health people and um, the pharmaceutical industry. So just seeing the ecosystem um, working simultaneously is very exciting. So the vaccine being here, being safe and plans to get it to scale uh, and reach, um, reach everyone being a focus and especially the hardest to reach being a top priority, hoping the Biden um, and Harris administration and especially the COVID-19 advisory group leads with that. That gives me hope. Um, and then second, uh, what also gives gives me hope is um, the fact that there is, um, you know, a, a shift in tide in, in political leadership here in the United States and a and leadership stepping in that's much more diverse. And all for all the reasons that I talked about, diversity being important. Um, we know that 2020, um, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement. Many of us, I'm sure, have participated in the movement, support it, endorse it. And it's great to see that we are recognizing, um, while it is tough to see it, but we're recognizing the racial and ethnic inequalities in the United States and in the world. But the fact that we are, have that recognition, um, I'm hopeful that we can prioritize those hardest to reach communities first and, and really see their struggle and act um, according to that. And, uh, and finally, I'm just really excited to see, you know, uh, I can't be on this uh, podcast and not acknowledge uh, that I'm thrilled to have the very first uh, woman of color be the vice president, Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, just leading us, um, you know, uh, next to a male who is an ally and well-respected uh, President Biden, and just very excited about this change in leadership style and what that brings, and particularly seeing a woman, woman of color, um, uh, being able to guide us and steer us in partnership. Well, thank you, Absolutely. Dr. Dot. And having a woman of color doctor guiding us and steering us today was our <laughs> pleasure. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for everything you're doing. Truly, this was really a fantastic conversation. I thought that was such an interesting conversation with Dr. Dot, who is really, you know, handling this on the front lines. And, you know, I know a lot of us are really debating, like we have kids, sometimes we're co-parenting, sometimes we want to see family members. And, you know, what I thought was interesting is she had mentioned, separate from this, that you can go on John Hopkins and there's resources about potting and what kind of contract that you need to have with one another if you are potting with other families. So I think the resources at John Hopkins were something that I know some of our listeners may be going to because I certainly will be. We've all got to stay safe these holidays. You're absolutely right, Johanna. We are all looking for resources these days. So it was great to have her share those with us. And as we talk about resources and adding to capacity, our POTUS of the week this week is Tina Flournoy. She's coming in as chief of staff for Kamala Harris, bringing experience and working with a team of almost all female leaders, mostly women of color, leading the office of the first and only woman of color ever elected vice president of the United States. So congrats to her and the team that will be bringing so much knowledge to that office. And for our shout out this week, it goes to Mariah Carey, who has really become the queen of Christmas. Let's be real. She put out an Apple Plus Christmas special and she mentioned something that I thought, you know, was really good insight into why she's really been the person that every year is into this festive mood and just ushers in the season, which is when she was a kid, you know, Mariah Carey's been very honest, especially in her book that she grew up in poverty. But when she was a kid, they didn't really celebrate Christmas and didn't have a lot of resources. And so because of that, she made a promise to herself that Christmas was always going to be a really festive time in her home. So I love that context about why Christmas is so important to Mariah Carey. And remember to subscribe so you'll be one of 
the first to hear our latest episode. Next week, we have a very special guest, former senior advisor to President Obama, Valerie Jarrett. So you don't want to miss that one. And as always, if you have time, leave us a rating and a review. It helps us build visibility for the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.